Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So it's bad. And we can be sure that it's much worse than we know. That having been said, as Art reminded us, there's actually relatively little here that's new. One measure of that is that it's actually not difficult to gather up everything that Art and Rose have said and sort them into the broad categories of what Dr. King, a black man who also knew this truth, called the giant triplets of American pathology in his famous Beyond Vietnam speech of 1967. A text, as I mentioned last night, that we spent all the Institute last year uh, studying together uh, in commemoration of its 50th anniversary. We're still essentially talking about the disparity between rich and poor, about white supremacy, and about full-blown militarism. There's no doubt that in each of these areas things have deteriorated dramatically, but we need to keep reminding ourselves that Trump did not give birth to these triplets. He's only muscling them up, which is why we need to look deeper. Taking our cue from John the Revelator, we can rightly name King's triplets in terms of the three horsemen of the continuing apocalypse of empire that has long plagued our planet and her human and natural communities, much longer than America. There is, of course, one new thing, a fourth horseman, that now joins this cavalry from hell, and that is climate catastrophe and all its related interlocking ecological crises, something that also has been brewing for centuries. More about that on Thursday morning. So our theme this today is how to dig in our heels in resistance to these horsemen. The Oxford English Dictionary de- defines digging in one's heels as stubborn resistance or refusal to give in, an idiom that alludes back to uh, the the notion of digging in one's spurs, dating back to 1885, originally um, alluding to trying to stop a runaway horse. The biggest double challenge for all of us, I believe, is the temptation, and Rose alluded to this, to be distracted either by the sheer spectacle of Trumpian delusions, which many activists are frankly obsessed with, reading that bullshit Twitter feed every day, or to distract ourselves away from it, to try to cut ourselves off of it, to to shield it out, as if insulation is exoneration. Just don't think about it. Either trajectory of distraction only helps normalize this toxic political culture. So our discipleship task is to refuse to be distracted in order to dig our heels in. Now, uh, half of the classes and workshops in this institute over the next three days are going to focus on how to dig in on a variety of issues. Environmental racism, brinksmanship in North Korea, immigrant rights, resisting white supremacy, the ongoing war in Afghanistan. There are myriad other issues that we could focus on if we had more time and space And many of those issues will come up in other venues throughout this week. But the hard truth is, 
We've seen political defeats pile up like corpses all year. And it's wearing us out. This is an email that I received last week from a veteran Bay Area faith-rooted immigrant rights activist. And uh, you, you can read what it says and, and just notice the last line, the last couple of lines. I'm still speechless. I often feel like I'm without a people. I will continue to fight, but man, I feel lost. Anybody feel like that? With this in mind, the other half of our breakout sessions this week are trying to help nurture some equilibrium in light of these kinds of feelings. To uh, develop personal and political capacity to sustain our, uh, our organizing, to build some fortitude, Rose. Uh, so we believe that permaculture and art as protest and somatic healing from trauma and addiction recovery work and social media literacy and nonviolence and anti-racism work Alternative forms of being church, these are all practices that can help us maintain a spiritually grounded, emotionally resilient, and politically tough center from which we deepen our discipleship in this crazy historical moment. I want to revisit a trope we invoked last year, a very thoughtful reflection by Ariana Huffington right after Trump's inauguration. And I want you to just focus on the, the bolded part here, that what we need to do is to try to find the eye of this hurricane. Hmm. How do we find the eye of a hurricane and inhabit it in order to dig in our heels more deeply? How do we unhook from the attention-grabbing spectacle of Trumpian politics while we seek to devote deeper attention to what is really going on? That's hard. It's hard to pay deeper attention when our attention is distracted. Deeper attention to the soma and psyche and society that is sick. I want to suggest this morning that the very strangest of strands in our scripture can be a surprising resource for this task. The apocalyptic imagination is the great stepchild of Western culture. The age of reason has so thoroughly colonized our minds and hearts that apocalyptic literature's wild, visionary, and almost shamanistic symbolism is forever being consigned by modernist culture either to the hyper-detached academics or the annoying fundamentalists or the weird artists, or the loony bin cultural fringes. There are two reasons for this. One is that we don't understand it, this culturally foreign imaginary, and so typical of Western style, we either dismiss it or colonize it. The other reason is that if modern progressives did correctly understand apocalyptic as a tradition of resistance literature, we would find it far too pessimistic about the current status quo and far too hopeful about redemption coming from beyond history as controlled by empire. So the apocalyptic tradition has been orphaned and trivialized in modern culture. But then shit happens that piques curiosity about these old texts. In the 20th century, that would have been World War II, 
that second great war between the North Atlantic white powers, culminating in the dawn of the nuclear age on the heads of Asian people, Hiroshima. Certain Western theologians suddenly became interested in ancient apocalyptic literature because their rationalist faith had been shaken, and some of them sought help from deep wisdom of the past. But today, climate catastrophe again compels many modernists to reconsider apocalyptic imagery. This time it's not theologians, it's scientists and other secular analysts who write books with titles like God's Last Offer and Endgame and the race for what's left, and the bridge at the end of the world. Of course, apocalyptic motifs have been popping up in popular culture since Dr. Strange's love in the early 60s, not least in the movies. Now, there's no biblical tradition more widely and profoundly misunderstood and misappropriated than this, whether by reactionary religion or distractive entertainment culture. Like a strong therapeutic drug, apocalyptic needs to be handled wisely and with the proper diagnosis. Thank you, Art and Rose. Because what can heal can also kill. If abused. For all these difficulties, however, I believe that apocalyptic motifs hold an important key to discerning key historical moments of crisis. So here's the deal, friends. Apocalyptic got nothing to do with God's cataclysmic destruction of the world. All right? Just check that at the door. As so often is assumed in popular culture. Apocalyptic is the grammar of marginalized communities who are looking and longing for the end of the destructive oppression wrought by the imperial state, which for the poor as Art pointed out, has always been a kind of end of the world. The Middle Passage was the end of the world. The genocide of Native America was the end of the world. And yet folk survived because they were looking deeper. So just strap it on for a quick minute because we're going to do a little Bible geekery here. Apocalyptic literature rose specifically from the context of ancient empire. It began during the era of Persian domination of the Mediterranean world. And then after that, the Hellenistic world forged by Alexander the Great, a sort of uh, Trump of antiquity. (coughs) These empires brought profound changes to traditional lifeways all over the Mediterranean world. The elites now ruled more cruelly extracting resources and spreading slavery and fighting unending wars in which poor folk were caught. But these were just the prolegomenon to how Rome spread imperial rule further and deeper throughout the classical world. How were folks on the margins supposed to resist? How were they supposed to nurture hope? You see, imperial catastrophe has been occurring in waves since the beginning of what we call civilization, Some folk like Jay would say it is civilization, an imperial disaster. The Greek word apocalypse means unmasking or unveiling. It it suggests a kind of vision 
that is able to see through the dominant stories of empire with its powerful fictions of entitlement and sovereignty, its militaristic triumphalism, its seductive myths of grandeur, and its severe orthodoxies of law and order. Okay, you don't, you don't, you don't get that? You'll get this, all y'all under 40. <laughs> Apocalyptic consciousness seeks to remove what Morpheus in the post-apocalyptic film The Matrix tells Neo is the world that has been pulled over his eyes. The propaganda of empire always masks the truth, distorts what it means to be human, and hijacks history. Apocalyptic faith endeavors to tear away that veil, to see reality from the standpoint of redemption. And it does so in two ways. First, it struggles to strip away layers of denial and delusion that keep us distracted, in order to expose the realities of suffering and injustice right there on the ground in the neighborhood so that we see the world as it really is from the perspective of those who are getting hammered on. And then, secondly, it seeks to transfuse our dulled and dumbed-down imagination with visions of the world as it really could and should be from the perspective of divine love and justice. The possibilities of a different way of being are revealed or at least glimpsed in the visions such as that of John the Revelator's New Jerusalem. We could call this apocalyptic double vision, to see the world enslaved and to envision the world liberated. Now, as we know, that most famous apocalyptic tome in our Bible, the Revelation, given to the political prisoner John of Patmos, this kind of literature is weird. It's highly symbolic, it's full of bizarre images and codes like abstract art or dream work. It takes careful observ observing to make sense of. Mark 13 is known as the Little Synoptic Apocalypse, and this is my text. It's the first of three studies from Mark's Gospel this week because it is, after all, year B in our lectionary. What's up, Scott? Um, <clears throat> And it's also, as I said last night, the 30th anniversary of the publication of my Mark commentary. Mark 13 is Jesus' longest unbroken discourse in the gospel. It's carefully paralleled with his extended teaching and parables in chapter 4. You might want to pull out a Bible to follow along here. This, after all, is supposed to be Bible study. Uh, this is a simple outline of Mark 13. It begins with Jesus breaking the bad news to his disciples that... Um, Trump just got elected. Uh, the temple state they know and love, illusions and all, is coming to an end. As it, in fact, did come to an end, destroyed by a Roman counterinsurgency that crushed a short-lived Judean independence movement in the year 70 of the Common Era. Talk about hard times. Mark's Gospel was written at the height of the Roman-Jewish War of 66 to 70, a generation after Jesus. It was a truly apocalyptic moment in the life of the early Christian community and the Judean people as a whole. The function of Jesus' sermon here is to warn Jewish Christians not to be persuaded or mobilized by the propaganda of the war makers, neither that of the Roman oppressors or that of the armed Judean nationalist rebels. The first half of the sermon is structured, note this, 
around a series of repeated warnings against the inflated claims of propaganda intended to sow fear and panic and thus political conformity. These refrains make it clear that Jesus is warning us against the deception generated by the fog of war. We must be able to see through this. Noteworthy is Jesus' appeal to our primary senses of perception, hearing and sight. When you hear, when you see, these are the faculties that are preyed upon relentlessly by political propaganda. We know this all too well in the Trump era. In particular, armed protagonists on every side, not only in antiquity but still today, they're going to promise that this war, this surgical strike, this new weapon system will solve our problems of security and defeat the enemy once and for all. Jesus is emphatic. When you hear the war drums start beating, don't panic. That's the meaning of the Greek word throeo, here to completely lose one's composure. The fact is, military interventions will end nothing. In fact, they'll only be the beginning of excruciating pain. Nowhere in all of the New Testament does Jesus more directly address the question of armed struggle. And he unequivocally rejects every messianic rationale for taking up the gun. And then he deepens his critique with a second exhortation. And when you see the abomination of desolation, here he's deep into coded phrasing from Daniel's apocalypse. Notice the veiled phrase, I hope you all are getting this. Let the reader understand. It alludes to the worst possible case scenario one can imagine at the hands of a brutal enemy. Think Nazis marching down the Champs-Élysées or planes flying into the World Trade Tower. For first century Judeans, this was the unthinkable prospect of the Romans sacking and destroying the sacred Jerusalem temple in the Judean capital city of Jerusalem. This is what happened just a couple of years after Mark wrote his story. This is a frieze on the famous Titus Victory Arch in Rome, and it depicts centurions carrying off the spoils of the Jerusalem temple. You can see the menorah left of center. The threat of such horrors would have been enough to mobilize even the worst skeptic of war, and for Mark's community, it was being used as a call to arms for every Jewish patriot to come to the defense of the nation. Under these dire circumstances, Jesus' counsel of nothing is nothing short of treasonous. He says, when you see this nightmare unfolding, don't rally to protect the motherland. Instead, mobilize in the opposite direction. Build your alliances with the folk who never really had a place at the table anyway. Retreat into the mountains to get perspective just as Jesus did repeatedly in the beginning of this story. Because no military response is going to fix what is broken. No band-aids, no glorious defense will save what is lost. Because the issues are deeper! Mark's Jesus is speaking about this evil so that his disciples will have ears to hear the lies and eyes to see what is really happening. 
which is, of course, the opposite of the Trump administration, and indeed of every empire, which hears and sees and speaks none of the evils that they propagate. Ever innocent empire. So this is not new to the culture of American power. We are a people keenly practiced in the art of denying our culpability. No accident that throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is focused on healing ears and eyes that are compromised so that people can move from denial to discipleship. Well, you thought that was weird. The second half of the sermon, uh, if the first uh, half of the sermon is about warnings, the second half turns to the classic high symbolism of apocalyptic taken from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel in order to address the disciples' request to know the true signs of the end of the oppressive world as we know it. Jesus' answer is this. Apocalyptic vision looks for the end, not the mere recycling of the politics of violence. Things will change, he argues, only when the principalities and powers themselves are pulled down from their heavenly thrones. And we might legitimately wonder how we do that. <laughs> the spectacle of cosmic unraveling is an ancient prophetic symbol of divine judgment. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Amos 8, Joel 2. Any historical project, this is how prophets see it, any historical project that is fatally compromised by oppression and injustice is headed for disaster. Disaster. Interesting etymology. It means the stars are falling. Here Mark is alluding specifically to Isaiah 34, 4's picture of the heavens rolling up and withering like a fig tree, a parabolic image he will shortly return to. And as for that sun going dark, that will occur within the bounds of Mark's own story at Golgotha upon the expiration of Jesus on the cross. In Mark's alternative symbolic world, here's where it really gets hard. This is the moment in which Daniel's human one, the bearer of true justice, is fully revealed on Golgotha. In other words, the human one coming in glory is not a Hollywood ending, folks. The human one coming in glory is Jesus hanging on the cross in Mark's cosmology. Because that is the ultimate expression of digging in one's heels in nonviolent resistance to empire. This is when the powers fall, according to Mark. But oh my, oh my, does it ever take some apocalyptic vision to see that. Because it sure doesn't seem so. The early church understood what they called the mystery of the cross. But our modern churches, mm -mm, we totally missed it because we're too busy constantly rallying to support the next war proposed by those who rule over us. The sermon ends by turning to another convention of apocalyptic literature, the discourse of parables. The first one returns to Jesus' curse of the fruitless fig tree in Mark 11. Remember that? Jesus walking by, poor little innocent fig tree, right? That was a symbolic action that 
tried to express his repudiation of the Judean temple state, which in the prophetic literature was often called the great fig tree. You might recall that this action takes place just prior to Jesus' most dramatic nonviolent direct action of cleansing the temple of bankers and profiteers. In, that, in this parable now, Jesus again proposes that a leafy, i.e. fruitless fig, is the sign of the apocalyptic harvest promised by the prophets Amos and Joel. That time has come, or as the old Quaker hymn puts it, the world is about to turn. And we're going to sing that song together in a few minutes. With a double warning, be aware, beware, 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 beware. Jesus reminds us that it is simply not ours to know when history will finally be liberated from the grip of the powers. But this is what he's telling us, and shortly will show us in his body. This is how we do it, through practicing the Via Crucis. That is why we must resist imperial propaganda and stay alert for the Kairos. Jesus now offers a final parable in which the world is metaphorized as a household whose true owner has gone away for a while. We who long for justice and mercy are given the task of caretaking this home. Think of the earth herself. We are caretaking this home, which Jesus had earlier envisioned as a home for all people. Remember in his temple action, citing Isaiah in order to defend that action? a home for all peoples, and now it is ours to watch out for, to stand vigil at the threshold. And now watch out becomes stay awake. This exhortation will be heard again shortly in Gethsemane, the Kairos moment in which Jesus does and his disciples do not choose the way of the cross. Note the three watches of the night here, evening, midnight, cock crow. They'll reappear in Mark's passion story, tragically mapping the anti-Kairos moment of Peter's denial. And in conclusion, it is if Mark's Jesus lifts his gaze from the disciples on the gospel page up to encounter all who will ever read this story, and that will be us. What I say to you, I say to all. We too must stay awake through the dark night of history, watching for possibilities of apocalyptic transformation. Needless to say, no easy task amid the kinds of storms that Art and Rose just outlined. We don't have answers for all the world's questions. We don't know when or how or if the architect will really return and put an end to this suffering. All we've been told is to keep vigil at the door, to stay awake with Jesus in a world that has become Gethsemane. And that, it is the garden in which this apocalyptic parable is decoded in the very next chapter of Mark's Gospel. Jesus, now a hunted fugitive, is praying for strength to face the music. He hopes the disciples will pray with him, but they cannot. Were you not strong enough to stay awake? He asked. Of all the many queries posed by Jesus the Great Interlocutor, this is the most unsettling. 
especially to folks of privilege like us. Because of its apocalyptic overtones. You know, Mark's narrative of the garden makes it clear that this Jesus of Nazareth, he's no aloof demigod, serenely reflecting on the mystery of the human pathos and holding retreats for how to be spiritually at peace in the midst of the storm. That's not who this dude is. Quite the contrary, he is profoundly distressed that it has all come to this. He does not want to face the consequences of his resistance to the empire, praying that the hour would pass. He hopes desperately that there's some other way to change the world. Please remove this cup. But through all of this, he remains awake. But it's so hard. So the disciples sleep, no doubt dreaming of better times. And the church sleeps, hung over from the wine of empire. And we sleep, sedated by delusions that somehow we will be rescued from the consequences of our own toxic behavior. Which is why when the authorities come to arrest Jesus in the garden, all the disciples can think to do is fight or flee, just like mother culture taught us. One of the disciples takes up his sword to defend the community because he didn't have the ears to hear Jesus' stipulation that armed struggle, no matter how just the cause, only strengthens the hand of the people with the bigger guns. Every time. They will outgun us. Every single time. The rest of the disciples head for the border. In Mark's story, it's only Jesus who embraces the Via Crucis. This garden scene is the culmination of Mark's discipleship story. And now the passion begins. That's how it is for those of us who care about justice and compassion and healing. Our spirits are willing, but man is our flesh ever weak. And when the dark night of history arrives and we never quite see it coming... We find ourselves too busy or too distracted or too tired or feeling a little too powerless to take up our crosses. Which is why Mark has given us Peter as our patron saint. Oh, Pedro, the chief knucklehead. Consider Mark's terrible and poignant vignette that follows immediately upon the scuffle in the garden. Mark narrates the scene as a sort of a split screen with archetypal power. Inside the courtroom, Jesus stands trial before the authorities accused of heresy and treason. Outside in the courtyard, Peter stands anonymously, unable to follow Jesus into the dock, but unwilling to abandon him altogether. What a tragic scene. It's the best Peter can do, given his conflicted loyalties and fears. Mark tells us that Peter was standing with the imperial guards, warming himself at their fire. Standing with the imperial guards, warming himself at their fire. You see, if we Christians can't follow Jesus, sooner or later we find ourselves standing confused and paralyzed, looking for a little warmth at the imperial fire. Feel it in your bones, friends. We have all been there. Particularly those of us who enjoy race and class or gender privileges in the first world. We know all too much about this moment. And then comes the moment of truth when we are challenged to reveal our true loyalties. Disciple or law-abiding citizen? Part of the resistance or whatever resigned to empire? 
We stammer and we stutter in a thousand different ways, knowing that we have a get-out-of-jail-free card if we just toe the line. In Mark's dramatic denouement, just as Jesus is condemned inside the courtroom, out in the courtyard, Peter makes the fateful choice. Squeezed by conflicting loyalties in the imperial vice, he seeks refuge in the shadow world of denial. To forfeit the truth about ourselves in order to save our sorry asses, that's what the empire teaches us to do. It's the Faustian bargain Jesus warned us against when he called us to take up our crosses, which, by the way, inconveniently is the gospel reading for this coming Sunday. Jesus understood perfectly the unforgiving psychological and political character of denial. If we flee from the consequences of discipleship, it is into the arms of imperial ignominy. Like Peter, if we can't follow Jesus... We sure enough cannot pass as an innocent bystander. He began to curse his life. No shit. Who wouldn't? Curse religion, or politics, or history, or my parents, or my friends, or my own choices. Everything that conspires to bring us to these kind of moments. Finally cornered and cowering, Peter swears his oath of dissociation the inevitable fruit of denial. I do not know this man. Be careful, you post-evangelicals, about dissociation from this man. Which is why we must at every turn struggle to stay awake. Mark's version of apocalyptic faith is an invitation to insomniac theology and politics. I do not use that metaphor, friends, lightly, because I suffer from a taxing and exhausting complex of sleep disorders, and it's no fun to be tired all the time. But I understand that this notion of faith as keeping vigil, I understand that it's strange. And I also understand that it could be construed as yet another religious rationalization for doing nothing to try to change anything, to abandon the struggle within history for some blessed hope that will rescue us from history. But that is not, as our young friends in the Black Lives Matter movement have reminded us, what staying woke is all about. No, this vigil is about remaining clear and attentive, both to the realities of oppression and to God's dream of justice. Staying woke is apocalyptic faith. We never got that in seminary. We got that on the streets of Ferguson. I'll close with a brief mention of the two heroes we will meet tomorrow night side by side in jail cells trying to keep this vigil in the belly of the beast in a production of Pastor Art's amazing play, Awaiting Judgment. Because it's interesting that both Bonhoeffer and King wrote how important staying woke in the tradition of Gethsemane was to their understanding of faith. Fascinating. In July 1944, one day after the conspiracy of which he was part failed in an attempt on Hitler's life, Bonhoeffer wrote to his friend and confidant Eberhard Betke, I am still discovering 
that one only learns to have faith by living fully in the midst of life's tasks, questions, successes, failures, perplexities. Then one takes seriously no longer one's own sufferings, but rather the suffering of God in the world. Then one stays awake with the Christ of Gethsemane. I think this is faith. This is metanoia. This is how we become human. When Bonhoeffer was initially arrested by the Gestapo in 1944, they described him in their report as completely in opposition to us. That brother had dug in his heels. And on April 9th, at the Flossenburg concentration camp, Bonhoeffer was hanged together with other conspirators, convicted of conspiring to save Jews, organizing an underground church, and trying to take out the dictator. And that's a pretty good rap sheet. The SS doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's execution later recalled, quote, a man so devout, brave, and composed, I have hardly ever seen anyone die so entirely submissive to the will of God. My mind. And our greatest American prophet, Martin Luther King Jr., he was also mindful of Gethsemane. Early on in his ministry, April 1957, shortly after the conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott, he preached a sermon at Dexter Avenue Baptist on the subject of Gethsemane. I'm determined that wherever God leads me, I will follow, said Dr. King. I will follow Jesus to the garden. I will follow Jesus to the cross if he wants me to go there. And so he did. Somehow you've given us a way to live when we say, not my will but thine. We remain stable amid the storm. That's where our equilibrium comes from. Dr. King testifies that there is an eye of the storm. Two years later, at a low point in the movement, after visiting the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane during a trip to the Holy Land with Coretta, King said in another Dexter sermon, Gethsemane is not just a spot on the map, it is an experience in the heart and the soul. Whenever we face great moral decisions in life, we find that we must stand there and people turn their backs on us and they think we're crazy. And that's when we are in Gethsemane. Hmm. And finally, at the end of his ministry on March 31st, 1968, Passion Sunday as it happened, less than a week before he was assassinated in Memphis, 23 years almost to the day after Bonhoeffer, and almost 50 years ago to our time this April 4th, King preached at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., at the National Cathedral. The Vietnam War was at its peak. He was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. He had been drawn deeply into the struggle of low-income workers in Memphis. His sermon was titled, Remaining Awake, and his text was from the book of Revelation. This sermon, the last he would ever preach, suggests that true apocalyptic faith holds nonviolent vigil amidst the stores of imperial history, not passively, but actively. Using the old American folktale of Rip Van Winkle, King called the church to remain awake to persistent racism and to the Indochina War and to widespread economic disparity at home and abroad, but also to remain awake to God's dream of true justice. And King did so at a time where he just as easily could have taken his little Nobel Peace Prize and called it a career. He could have retired 
settling for one of those prestigious honorary academic or board positions that were being offered to him. In the remaining awake sermon, King describes his own crossroads of conscience of taking a stand against the Vietnam War, even though everybody told him, don't do it, Dr. King, don't do it. And the critique he got from the press and how everything turned. And he says, you know, there comes a time when you just got to take a position whether or not it's safe or politic or popular. Sometimes we just got to join with the words of the old Negro spiritual. Ain't going to study war no more. No more. No more. No more. King, too, dug in his heels to imperial militarism. And that's what got him killed five days later. Make no mistake about it. He and Bonhoeffer exercised apocalyptic faith in times of national crisis and embraced the Via Crucis. Sisters and brothers, Jesus is clear. The only way that we will endure the Trump regime, which all too often sounds all too much like King's Cold War apartheid America or Bonhoeffer's Nazi Germany, the only way is to stay woke at the, in the eye of the storm, to practice fortitude, to be sure how we practice apocalyptic insomnia is not going to be as dramatic as these two saints, but it will be of no less consequence. Every single one of us, all of us together, may this week be one in which we each and all together build just a little bit more capacity to dig in our heels and stay woke because the world is Gethsemane. We got a song, Josh? We got a song? Come on. Come on, sea bombs. Step You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.